I'm Hannah Wynn, and you're listening to Critical Literary Consumption, a podcast where I ask my guests, who are writers, poets, and scholars, about their reading and writing practices. Some topics I explore are what is the author responding to, what are the tensions between author, text, and audience, whose interpretations matter, what could be a miscitation, and how language is used and constructed. My guest today is Jennifer Wong, the author of Return Flight, which was published by Milkweed Editions in January 2022. Their poems have appeared in Poetry, The Rumpus, and Poetry Northwest, among other places. They have received recognition from the Academy of American Poets, Brooklyn Poets, North American Taiwan Studies Association, and more. In 2020, Jennifer earned their MFA in Poetry at the University of Michigan, Born in Maryland to Taiwanese immigrants, they have since called many places home. Departure My father used to pick baby bok choy sprouts and place them in my bowl. I don't remember exactly when he stopped, but I miss those dinners when grown-ups would fight to pay sometimes pretending to go to the bathroom, but really grabbing the check. We would choke down our food to get seconds, though there was always plenty. Slurping and clanking took place of conversation until the table was left a wreck. My father and I would share what we called the best parts of the fish, the cheeks and neck, and suck the meat from the bones. He would cut a spoonful, place sweet broth ginger and scallions atop and tell me, chew slowly and feel what you are eating. Once I realized a bone was stuck in my throat. The skeleton clawed my speech. Why didn't I listen? My brother fed me vinegar doused rice. I took it, swallowed every bite and bit through acid nausea and gradually from my throat, it dissolved further within, without evidence. Thank you for sending me a copy of the book. That was so nice. Thank you so much. The cover is so beautiful and everything. <laughs> yeah, and I'm so glad that we're getting a chance to talk. I feel like we email a lot. I know, <laughs> I know. And I DM you the most innocuous things. <laughs> Let's begin with your dedication because I think it alludes to a lot of the topics that I saw recurring in the poetry collection. Um, specifically, I noted themes of, I mean, your collection's called Return Flight, so of course there are themes of visiting, returning, and then also language, diaspora, and wanting to belong. Um, you dedicate the collection for your family and that which is unsaid. As a poet, how do you craft words? How do you space them? And were the absences and then said that cannot be revealed in your poems? Did you have a particular audience in mind? Or maybe when you wrote the poems, who did you want to be in conversation with? I guess this is another way of rephrasing that question. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, I think that reframe of the question helped. Because when I was thinking about that question... I was thinking about how I really wrote this because I needed to for myself in many ways. But then like in the periphery, I was thinking about Taiwanese people and also Taiwanese Americans, Asian Americans generally and wanting to write, um, write to them. 
But I think some people that I want to be in conversation with are poets like Ocean Vuong and Chen Chen and Victoria Chang, people who love memory and genre and also like have a sense of playfulness or experimentation um, with form and just like different ways to tackle a subject, I guess, while also speaking to like Asian experiences. And then in terms of my dedication to the collection, I think that the absences, um, like the things that are unsaid that might relate to a poem later in the collection called Relief. And the, it ends with the line, I draw the blinds closed to hear what is private. And so even though I think this collection is pretty honest and vulnerable and shares a lot, I also think that there are some things that are private mm -hmm. that are unsaid, but also things that maybe still can't be put into language and maybe can never be put into language. Mm -hmm or that I still haven't figured out how to put into language. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think really a book is like a stamp in time, but not mm -hmm. like the end all be all. Mm -hmm. And I'm still trying to figure, figure mm -hmm. it out. I just remember when I interviewed Disha Filia, I noted that there is some sort of quietness in her story collection, The Secret Lives of Church Ladies. And on the podcast, she said something like, there are things that the absences or the things that are unsaid are like places where she withholds judgment. And I really like that kind of imagining of if there's a deliberate move to not say everything, what could that space hold? That's what I thought when I read your poetry collection and then connecting that with your dedication. I just thought it was really a lovely sentiment that you don't have to say everything, that you can withhold some things as you're trying to figure it out because um, your poetry collection or anyone's written work, it won't have a conclusion where like, mm -hmm. you know, so that's why I wanted to start the conversation with your dedication and then the subsequent poems that have those kind of moments where it doesn't end, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I really love what she said. I'm like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and so now that the first question was on language I want to focus on the very first poem you called neighborhood walk you added pinyin in the fourth line and I think if I if I remember pinyin well from my Chinese classes it was something about being happy is that was that right okay mm -hmm. so and then pinyin creeps up in some of your other poems and I wonder if this is a nod to the things that could be unsaid um in one of your poems and customs you you made a reference to Roland Barthes so in that epigraph you included his quote what language conceals is said through my body and there's a lot of imagery about kind of a physicalness to that that poem um, that the narrator's brother struck the narrator and then the poem ends with the former lover choking the speaker so I wanted to ask you about this inability to shape words in that poem or like kind of the construction of that kind of image in your poetry collection. How do you connect the question of languages, the quote from Barthes, uh, relationships in the physical body? Mm. 
Yeah, this question made me think a lot <laughs> in a really good way. And I think my use of being is kind of a nod to, I think you're right, a nod to the stuff that's unsaid, but also the stuff that maybe can't be understood. I guess like maybe with a reader who isn't familiar with Chinese or painting, of course they could probably like look it up or something, but like looking at the page, there is some kind of like blocked knowledge perhaps. And I think that mirrors my own relationship to the Chinese language. I grew up speaking it and listening and reading and writing, but over time that muscle hasn't been exercised as much, so I've lost a lot. So when I go to Taiwan, I have a lot of trouble being able to communicate or understand what's going on. And then I think what struck me about Barth's quote is, for me, made me think about how, like, sometimes what you say or what someone says might not match how they feel or, like, mm -hmm. what's going on in their body. And I think the speaker in the poem, they, like, reveal that they kind of enjoy the lover placing the hand on their throat and kind of questioning like why why like something that maybe is reminiscent of pain and also of violence which mm -hmm. is something that the speaker experienced in childhood in a way that was painful and traumatizing so like figuring out how can someone enjoy or desire pain and why seek out pain so there's kind of maybe an irony or like a contradiction there, which also comes through in the Barth's quote, maybe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You helped me organize the event with Jenny Chi, and she talks about the emotional immediacy of poems. And, and I noticed that some of your poems have, maybe this goes back to the first question where I was talking about form and shape. Some of your poems really like narrative prose, and then others you have interesting ways of spacing things out. Some other poems have pinging, and sometimes they're italicized and not. So how do you make that kind of artistic creative decisions on how it looks physically on a page and then what you choose to single out in terms of the Taiwanese words that you use? Mm. <laughs> Yeah, I think a lot about shaping is more of an intuitive process to me, maybe. Because um, usually my poems start out pretty prose-like, mm -hmm. like just like a lot of writing and maybe random line breaks, just like just letting it flow out. I was really struck by your fantasy self erasure, like the way it moves. I thought, and when I say disrupted, I don't mean that in a bad way, but because the other poems before it had like you were saying, it there was a prose-like structure to it, and then that one kind of broke my attention, or I guess my eyesight, rather. So, <laughs> Yeah, with this one, it's actually a ratio of a poem, a love poem that I wrote. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, for, for a relationship that didn't work out. Um, and it's also in layover, the, this part of the... Mm. Like on page 40, that's also an erasure of something I wrote in my notes app on my phone. I love the way it looks on the page. It's like kind of more abstract, I guess, uh -huh. like abstract painting or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have a visual arts background. 
background, which is kind of why I was really pulled to poetry in the first place. Thinking about like the way words appear on the page and how they look aesthetically, but also work within a line or mm -hmm. within a stanza. I think that's really important to me and part of the reason why I love poetry, just like the craft of it. I could spend hours and hours just moving one word uh -huh. <laughs> around. Um, and sometimes it's not productive. Sometimes it's just like playing around and like avoiding writing by making wine mm -hmm. <laughs> But other times it's just really fun for me. I read Return Flight as a sort of travelogue. So like we noted that you begin the collection with Neighborhood Walk and then there's a, a page that marks space and time. That's how I looked at it because, you know, um, and then you resume with departure, the first departure, not the departure that you read. Um, and this title returns many times in your other sections. How I read it was it was a signal for us to think about some time has passed since that other departure. And this pattern is briefly interrupted by a poem that you titled Layover, which seems to act as another buffer before another section begins. Did your traveling experiences shape this collection in particular? Do you think of your poems as in some way comparing your experiences living in the U.S. with dias diasporic parents and having family in Taiwan? And to return to your title, Return Flight, what are you departing or returning from? It's funny that you say there is like a travelogue. I didn't realize this until other people started saying it to me. It's like travel, like travel mm -hmm. book. It's like, oh, yeah, I guess. And then a part of me felt kind of, well, I think this just goes back to my own complicated relationship with being Taiwanese and relating to my heritage where I feel like travel feels frivolous. And then I'm like, oh, no, it's not about travel. It's about being in a place or something. I don't know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it is about travel, I think. And learning about a place or a culture by being there, even if that culture is your own culture, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, so I took a trip to Taiwan with my dad in May 2019. And before that, I'd only been to Taiwan, I think, like, two or three times in my life um, when I was much younger. And so it was kind of like the trip. And I had all these questions because I was in my MFA program and writing this manuscript. And I had all these questions I wanted to ask and all these places I wanted to go to learn or figure things out or just come back to like family or heritage so the title return flight i always wanted the title to refer to some kind of thing with air travel mm -hmm. but when i was thinking like i always knew that like instinctually i was like that's what i want it to be but i couldn't figure out a title that wasn't cheesy all the titles that i thought of were just too on the nose and too overused or something but then I, I actually before departure the departure poems they're all called return oh so the original titles for return mm -hmm. oh. so each section started with a poem called return and then something clicked one day I was like oh return flight like I'm taking a return flight to XYZ 
I don't know, when I think of this collection and how it's organized, I think the departures for me call attention to the fact that even when someone's in a place, they're kind of on the verge of some kind of departure or like return somewhere. It's kind of, it's not like a set thing. It's always a cycle that's in bloom, mm -hmm. um, at least for me. And then on a personal level too, like thinking of when I go to Taiwan, it's like I'm returning to a home, but then when I'm in Taiwan and coming back to the U.S., I'm returning to a different home. So it just yeah. feels like an endless cycle of like mm -hmm. returning and there's no end point really. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of weird in that way, I guess. Yeah. The idea of home for a lot of diasporic families is very odd to me. My parents are Vietnamese. They were immigrants. And I feel like in some sense, I inherited a lot of their kind of mm, geographic tendencies to label something home and not home. Like mm. my, my parents had, my mother, I, I lost my father a few years ago, but my mother, I'm not sure if she calls where she has lived for the last 40 years home. But she also doesn't really call Vietnam when she goes to visit her family. She doesn't call it home either. So it's very odd. I'm not sure if it's like transitory or or what home means to her. But I think for a lot of us, home is a very loaded term. And every time I say home, it's always in air quotes, you know? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Resonates a lot. <laughs> so I still want to put more attention on language and place. I wanted to ask specifically about tongue tied because there I think Taiwan is a focused geographic body. In that poem, you share that the narrator's mother does not know Taiwanese and she doesn't want to return to her parent land. When the narrator tells your father that they want to live in Taiwan, he laughs and questions their decision. And then we, the reader, realize that the father has lived in the United States for 40 years and refers to himself as an American when a taxi driver asks where he's from. So it's like another one of those common questions that we hear is, where are you from? I I, under I really understood it. <laughs> I know in the, I guess it would be the index notes where you kind of explain some, some specific Taiwanese events and dates to give us some sort of um, context to the poems. Can you tell us about Taiwan's period of martial law, which you referenced in that poem, um, and because a lot of your other poems also allude to culture-specific events, I was curious about your research process as you drafted some parts of your poetry collection. Mm -hmm. So, Taiwan's period of martial law, it started February, well, I guess it was maybe instigated by an event that happened February 20, 1937. But before then, there was a lot of tension between Taiwanese people, which includes a lot of different groups because mm -hmm. there's a lot of different periods of rulership and colonization. And then also the, I guess, the Chinese Nationalist Party. But during martial law, um, a lot of, I guess it was very much about the suppression of Chinese culture. And so a lot of intellectuals or artists who are speaking out against the Chinese government um, they were imprisoned and also a lot of them were executed. And it's kind of like, 
a contentious history in that different people view it in different ways, but it's because of Chinese propaganda and the way that it's been painted through the government. But there's also been a lot of movement uh, towards recognizing what actually happened and telling the true story of that. And also, of course, that's tied to like the movement of Taiwanese independence, um, like democracy and governmental independence. So that was the period of martial law. I did do a lot of research for the collection. When I learned about 228 and the period of martial law, I was actually pretty young. I was in high school and it kind of opened my eyes. And I was like, oh my gosh, this kind of explains a lot about why my family is the way that they are. And um, just like the reasons why I felt kind of weird like there was some kind of like internal complexities that I didn't understand where that was coming from. And I always knew that I wanted to write about this. So I kept trying and trying in college when I took creative writing classes, trying to like figure it out and really reflect and trying to analyze it. Then when I was doing my MFA, I was like, okay, this is the time when I can do it. And so it was mostly writing about family and this history a little bit. A lot of the research that I did, I guess, I mostly stumbled upon when I traveled to Taiwan. Mm-hmm. My dad was like telling me these stories and then we were taking tours and I would hear stories from tour guides as well. Mm-hmm. And I was taking a lot of notes when I went back to the U.S. and Michigan. I took those notes and trying to like dig deeper into those threads that were started mm-hmm. um, in Taiwan. And I started getting really interested in like ghost stories and like folk tales and stuff. So I was looking into that as well. Mm-hmm. So let's see. So this trip, you mentioned a trip in 2019, right? So did you begin writing the collection in 2019 or? Yeah. Yeah. So it was about 2019. I mean, the earliest I have in here is um, maybe like uh like 2015 or 2014 yeah but then most of it was written between 2018 to 2020 i think it's funny i think as asian children of diaspora parents this guy ghost stories and mythologies i think it's always kind of inherited do you feel that way because i feel like my parents always tell me a lot of these fables and tales and and um, I'm rewatching Journey to the West, the Chinese, oh. the, the old one, the 1986 one. And it's funny how I used to be really scared of those episodes. And now I think, oh, this is cheesy. But it's <laughs> the special effects are really bad, like really <laughs> bad. But the tales are so familiar. And I know it's not a Vietnamese tale. It's a Chinese tale. My parents played that series so often. And it seems like this topic of ghosts and ancestral ghosts, like, you know, with Kalisa Ray's collection, like it's become a a big topic now. Yeah, it's interesting. I think with my parents, it was kind of like, I would hear all these like superstitious stories. Mm-hmm. And it's very interesting. Yeah. And then kind of like fear-based too. Yes, I know. <laughs> they they would say something when I act up. I remember they said, the gods are going to strike you because you're disrespectful, I think. Oh, my gosh. No, thank you. Like, you just wanted me to be obedient. Like, yeah. <laughs> But you heard some variation of that, right, as yeah. a kid? Yeah. <laughs> Evil parents. So talking about maybe 
Asian themes, I want to talk about, of course, food and the emotions. And of course, you alluded to a lot of particular food memories. Um, Notes on Orange, I found, I smile every time I think about Notes on Orange because, you know, orange and Asian families are so symbolic. It's always about peeling. It's never really the act of eating, but it's about the, the ritual aspect of it. And I know a lot of writers focus on it too. You also conjure imagery of being too close to the sun. I thought of Icarus, you know. Um, why do you say that the opposite of humans and orange? I was really struck by that line in that poem. Are your memories of food somewhat wistful? And I'm also thinking about the poem that you read for the episode in the beginning, the departure one, where the narrator recalls eating at restaurants with their family. And there was a scene where the narrator chokes on the best parts of the fish after a gentle warning from the father. Because my research focuses a lot on food and the language of food. I wonder, why did you feel compelled to write about an orange as your main subject in one of the poems? And then these kind of, some of the other food memories trickle into different aspects of your poems. Yeah, I think orange specifically for that poem, because it's like one of the ways that I'm connected to my grandfather on my mom's side, who I never met. He passed when I was very young. But I grew up hearing stories about him. And it's interesting when you don't know an ancestor, but then you hear from family members like, oh, this reminds me of that person, or the way you do this reminds me of that person. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think food in this collection, and for me, it's like a way to be with loved ones, um, like to share a meal or to cook for someone or to eat someone else's food. I think that's an act of love and an experience that you have with people that you love, hopefully. <laughs> I don't know. So I guess some meals you don't have to be with people that you love. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, and I, I think your question also made me think about like ancestral altars or leaving offerings for ancestors as a mode to like give back and to honor them, mm -hmm. uh, which is something that I do. And oftentimes it's fruit, like mangoes yes. or yeah, oranges. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Bananas, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so, yeah, I think, I think the food is a way to connect to the physical, like humans, but also to maybe other realms as well. Mm -hmm. The line about opposite of humans. Yeah. <laughs> I think, well, on the craft level, when I was editing this poem, I realized that I was writing this the poem with the logic that, like, the opposite of human equals God. Mm -hmm. um, but I was like, is that true? <laughs> like, yeah. I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, and so it brought me down this weird philosophical questioning. And I was thinking of the Kandinsky quote too, red brought nearer to humanity by yellow. And so orange being like a thing that's kind of between mm -hmm. red and yellow. And then thinking maybe red and yellow are kind of like more human red. Right. The Kandinsky quote. I don't actually know the reference. Okay, so it's in this book that I was reading about colors, the secret lives of colors. 
Um, and so the poem goes through all these different colors and how they came to be. I think I was just flipping through the book and that's where I got that quote from. So red being the thing that's close to human, mm -hmm. yellow being the conduit or thing that you're mixing human with to bring farther away from humanity, which was then quote unquote God perhaps. And then God equals orange maybe so what is the true opposite of human maybe orange i'm really compelled by this because i didn't know the kandinsky reference i thought oh maybe something about the humors the colors and the humors in the shakespearean world you know how they talked about i guess it'll be alchemy science was so that's what my my attention went to but i think Ooh. i think the reference that you're talking about it's it seems to be like in betweenness of orange. Mm -hmm. I don't know. And also just thinking about the rainbow. So <laughs> Yeah, in betweenness. Yeah. And I do feel like God and spirituality are like complex things. Mm -hmm. And they have a lot of feelings. I was raised Buddhist and I know there are multiple gods and deities and bodhisattvas. I think you weren't explicitly looking for a binary, but maybe Right, because that was what you were gesturing to. Like, they, you weren't trying to do a binary, but you were wondering what, like, what's outside the binary? Mm -hmm. Maybe orange. <laughs> <laughs> well, oranges were always plentiful on my altar tables. <laughs> well, it's funny. I think um, in one of the earlier renderings of this poem, I wrote this poem, I guess, during the Trump era, um, and somebody in my workshop was, I guess, kind of noting that, like. Oh, LOL, orange. <laughs> and thinking of like how orange has so much different meaning now mm -hmm. after Trump's presidency. Um, oh, I see. I don't know if that has okay. a place in this poem, but just like interesting to think about, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Like, I forgot about the whole 45 and the Cheeto puff or whatever they call them. <laughs> trying to forget <laughs> and so talking about food there was another poem that i really love the song of Zhou Dofu. i love that you had a whole poem dedicated to the pungent descriptions of stinky tofu um and there was a, such a joy in the way the narrator describes their love for it so we talked about an orange and maybe not orange just as a fruit but the symbolicness of orange the color and the object but this one was just really all about the food. Did you want this this poem to contrast your other food-related poems? Hmm. I don't think I did it intentionally, but I think that's interesting. It's something I also didn't notice myself, I guess. But I wrote this poem because Chodofu was my favorite food, like period, but also one of my favorite foods to eat when I'm in Taiwan. Mm -hmm. It's street like, food, right? It's, yeah, it's street food. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of hard to get in the U.S. I, I was actually in Albuquerque and stumbled upon a Taiwanese restaurant and they had Chodofu and I was so happy. It was really good. But yeah, it's hard to find even where I'm living right now, which is kind of like the Maryland, D.C., Northern Virginia area. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of good like Chinese and Taiwanese food options, but I don't think there's any stinky tofu. But if there is and someone's listening, please just tell Reach me. Reach out to you, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I wanted to write this poem to 
kind of embody stinky tofu um and to like show my love for it and I was like what if I just wrote an ode tofu mm-hmm. and then so then I started doing some weird not weird internet. I was just like wikipediaing and looking things up about it and like how it's made and I was kind of frustrated and disappointed by what I found which was western food writers writing about it in this mm-hmm. kind of like flattened and like yeah. way mm-hmm. where it's like oh my gosh we lit an eight stinky tofu you're so brave yeah and like a rite of passage or something yeah 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 and so I guess that made me want to write this poem even more and to take the words that they were using and to like use it in a way that felt good um, Mm -hmm. to me as a writer like repurposing that language in the way that was more celebratory yeah Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. so it's funny that you said how uh western writers when they write about stinky tofu it's it's kind of like a heroic act it's kind of the same with durian I couldn't get into durian, but like, my mom thinks you're no good if you don't like durian. There's always some sort of pride in saying I ate the stinkiest food in X country, so I understand. But I really love the language that you use. I think I've only had stinky tofu once in a Taiwanese restaurant, and it was very familiar. This I don't want to say it was negative language, but you know, you did capture what I remember being the essence of stinky tofu. There was just such pure joy in the way that the way that I read it. So, mm, yeah. And maybe because when I tend to write about food in my own essays, it's always a bit sad. And there are some moments where I thought in some of your poems I thought the food memories were a bit sad, like choking like the best part of the fish, even though the narrator was choking. I thought that was really that really stood out to me. I'm not a depressed reader. I just like, I'm just thinking <laughs> like, no, sometimes food, it veers into the sadness a bit. Mm, yeah. It's very emotional. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Jennifer, I know this is your first poetry collection. You've been doing a lot of author events. So there are two questions I want to ask you. How has the reception been? And can you tell us if you're working on a, a new project or do you write some projects that you could share? Yeah, the reception is really great, and I'm really grateful. I think I was really nervous for this book to come out, and I'm a nervous, anxious person. And I think also, like, a book was a piece of me, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been weird to think, like, oh, my God, people are actually maybe going to read this, um, you know, how scary that is. But uh, it's been great. I think um, it connected me with people that I haven't talked to in a really long time. It's also helped me meet and connect with new people, which has been fun. And it feels like kind of like an end of a chapter of my life where I can kind of maybe let go of some things spiritually maybe or like emotionally. I don't know. <laughs> um but yeah, I, I am working on the new project. I'm working on a novel. <laughs> Exciting. Yeah, but it's like slow going, I guess. I had this goal that I was going to write a novel within one year, and then I burned out. <laughs> and now I'm slowly working my way back towards it. Mm-hmm. It's kind of about complicated family relationships <laughs> and also like forgiveness and secrets and queerness. And it takes place in. Maryland, Florida, and Nevada. 
I think a lot of themes that are explored in the book kind of like have moved over there, but like just like different men. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm also excited. This is the first year I'm going to plant a vegetable garden, so that's another project that I'm working on. That maybe a little shorter term and more will be achieved, perhaps. <laughs> that's so exciting. Yeah, I guess like I really want to grow like Taiwanese cabbage or like. Oh Mm-hmm. reading how not really reading but like hearing about experiences of people like getting in touch with their ancestry or heritage by like planting the vegetables so i'm just going to see a lot of my parents gardens it's just interesting how they retain a lot of their their old ways and how they adapted it into a new country so that's that's really exciting i'm very jealous <laughs> <laughs> We should grow, um, what did she say? She advised us not to grow something. Is it eggplant? <gasps> oh, we should grow eggplant, but not broccoli because broccoli, worms get them easily, she said. Oh. So maybe that's some advice for you. Yeah. <laughs> she said, you can also um, companion plant. I yeah. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. You can find like a broccoli, like a plant that goes well with broccoli. They can eat the pests or like ward off mm-hmm. the pests. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I don't know how we got into this gardening theme. I was really excited <laughs> for you. But take pictures for me. I want to see this gardening. I'll give you more pictures of our friends outside. <laughs> so. Okay. Yeah. So, Jennifer, when your novel takes shape and you want to come back on the podcast, please come back so we could talk about it because I really enjoyed Return Flight. And I hope we stay in touch and keep me up to date with your writing projects. I'd love to keep having you on. Oh, this has been so great. Thank you so much for all your questions. Oh, thank, well, thank you for all your wonderful responses. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. You can reach me on Twitter and Instagram at anandroid. I'd also like to thank Mariah Behrens for creating the cover art for my podcast and my partner, Matthew Sample, for his music and edits. See you next time. <laughs>